So Romans 14, uh, this has been, out of the whole section 13 and 14, this text specifically has probably been one of the more difficult ones this week uh, in terms of study and application uh, because Paul is driving a pretty hard line uh, at this point in time and what is like the best practical way to go about your life. Um, and so I just want to, for the sake of uh, clarity and for the sake of a brief review, because it's been at least a week for most of us for uh, the last time we looked at this text. Um, so far, we've been exploring the freedoms that we have in Christ. So in Romans 13, in the back half, we know that the only thing we're to owe other people is to love them. And then in verse 14, we're, we're uh, or sorry, in chapter 14, in the beginning, verses 1 through 12, we're exploring how uh, the freedoms we have in Christ uh, are many. They're abundant freedoms that you have. You're no longer bound by the Old Testament sacrificial law, the dietary codes, anything like that. But that the gospel is supposed to inform how we go about living through these freedoms. So not only does the gospel free us to live uh, outside of the law or not under the bounds of a lot of the Old Testament laws, um, but it also is supposed to then inform how we exercise our liberties uh, in many relationships. So in order to appropriately discuss how we're supposed to then exercise these liberties, I think the best place for us to start off is to review what is this gospel that has freed us in order to allow us to live uh, in right relationship with one another. So here is the gospel fully uh, like flushed out, and this is what's going to inform how we live uh, with one another. So the gospel is that uh, there was this guy, Jesus, who was born uh, about 2,000 years ago, uh, and he came to essentially fulfill the law. He was sent by God as the second person of the Trinity to come and live the life that you and I were supposed to live. See, before Jesus, you and I were condemned in our sins, that we lived in a way in which we were rebellious towards God in everything that we did that we lived our lives in such a way that we were enemies of God, children of wrath, and that we actually enjoyed the sin that we did. Because we sinned not because we were forced to sin or because anyone was making us do these things, but we sin because we are sinners, because we enjoy sin, we love it. It brings us some level of satisfaction in our hearts because that's our old sin nature. That's what we were born into and brought into this world through. David says that I was brought forth in iniquity from his mother's womb was he sinful. And so uh, in that light, all of us have lived that way bound by sin because we loved it so much. And so then Jesus comes, not born of man, but born of the Holy Spirit through Mary. And he's now born not of man, so he's not under this binding of sin in the same way that you and I were, as we uh, were under Adam, but we, he is under uh, God, born of the Holy Spirit. So he comes into this world with a clean slate. And he's able to live the life that you and I should have lived. It says in Luke that he grew in both stature and favor with God, that he learned the New Testament, that he walked in complete observance of the law, that Old Testament law that you and I would have completely failed to observe. And that Jesus, when he grew into his ministry, ultimately he was bringing people to reconcile them to God and teaching them a new way and new teachings that not only uh, didn't undo the Old Testament, but actually built upon the foundation the Old Testament had laid. And he elevates the standard in many different ways, such as that uh, no longer is it okay not to commit, you, you can't just not commit adultery. You have to no longer lust towards one another. So he keeps coming in and elevating the standard and doing all these teachings to see clearly the commands of God. And not only does he teach us these things, but he lives in perfect observance of all these laws, in perfect relationship with God, in the way that you and I were supposed to when we were initially created. And then it is because of this perfect life that he lived, the world sees that and hates it because the world hates God. And so then Jesus, under a wicked justice system, under a wicked and uh, unjust people, he's condemned to death, death on a cross. And he submits himself to die on the cross because that was the plan of God all along, which is that Jesus would die on the cross fully and finally, not because he was out of control, not because Satan had won as Satan thought he did, 
But Jesus dies on the cross because he needs to be the sacrificial lamb who pays for our sins so that he stands in our place and he dies the death that you and I actually legitimately really deserve to die. This is not a, a symbolic thing. This is not all for show. This is not God playing games or anything like that. God did to Jesus exactly what he would have had to do to us if Jesus had not stood in our place. And the Old Testament paints that picture of lambs being brought to slaughter, perfect spotless lambs. Uh, Isaac is offered on the altar before Abraham, uh, and right before Abraham's about to strike him down, God provides a ram to stand in his place and not so that Isaac would not be crucified or killed on that altar. And so then Jesus, being the perfect fulfillment of all of these things, dies in that place for us, exactly where you and I were supposed to die. And it is on the basis of this, then Jesus then, not only does he die, he also resurrects from the dead, comes back to life, conquering death, conquering sin, and being this person who now stands completely in victory over all the things that once held us captive. And then he comes and he offers a new life to be baptized into his resurrection. So not only do we die with Jesus to our old selves and our flesh, but we are raised to life again with him and a new life with a new spirit. And we've now been remade and we now have a right relationship with God. Not on the basis of our works, because we're still sinners. We are simultaneously justified and still sinners. But fully and more increasingly, we grow into holiness with Christ. And when God looks at us, now he doesn't see who we are, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus, which covers and cloaks us. That by Jesus' blood, he paid for you and I to stand again in right relationship with God. So that's the gospel. And so he set us free from sin. And as Paul uh, succinctly writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, being Jesus. And then the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled with us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we put aside our old selves and we now walk in accordance with the flesh. And it's on the basis of this that there's now no condemnation for us. And then he explores later how this all works itself out. And in Romans chapter 12, he says, Therefore we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. And so he's been unpacking all of these ideas as we go forward. And this is not only supposed to inform our relationship with God, but how we treat other people who are the image bearers of God. And that this is our witness to the world. So what does this look like? Because love not only is the fulfillment of the law, it's also the highest end to which all believers can strive to attain because it's how Jesus perfectly loved us that we ought to love the world. So how does love inform our treatment of others? Well, first and foremost, we know that love is focused first on God and then on others, and very lastly, and actually not at all, focused on ourselves because we know that to be selfish is to be unloving, to put ourselves as first priority. And what you're going to see in the text here is actually that people exploring their own liberties fully is bumping into other relationships. And that's actually being no, no longer loving, no longer walking in a spirit of love towards one another. So the law and love are explicit in very many categories. And we talked about these categories last week, about how things like doctrine and scripture, and even things like what we see marriage to be, those are clearly and explicitly taught in scripture. And there are reasons why you either have unity and fellowship with one another, or why you might have to break unity for a time to call someone to repentance on those issues. So we know that there are clear categories in which we can say this is explicitly what the Bible teaches and you can't deviate from that, right? Those are primary issues. But we also know that there's liberty in some areas in which we would call them tertiary issues, things that are matters of opinion and conviction, in which you can have disagreement, but you can still have unity. You can still be in fellowship and relationship with one another. 
but you need a kit of love and wisdom and also the conscience that the Holy Spirit gives you in order to walk rightly in these relationships because it requires a lot of fine-tuning with wisdom, a lot of fine-tuning with discernment, and a lot of graciousness towards one another with, as we work out these issues with fear and trembling, trying to figure out what is the most pleasing thing to God and how we all ought to walk in this way. So last week we talked primarily about those who are weak in the faith and how they might struggle to be legalistic with these issues. But this week Paul is going to turn his attention and shift his focus in the letter. He actually addresses the weak, and now in verse 13 he starts addressing the strong. And how the strong's violation of this, uh, these matters of opinion is they actually flaunt their liberty, and they just show it off, and they do it in as many areas and as many arenas as possible. And he talks about how this is actually a violation of the liberty. It's an abuse of the liberty to a point where it infringes on love and is no longer uh, in right relationship with their neighbors. So even though they're fully exercising their liberty in Christ, how that's actually an incorrect exercise of that liberty. And so this passage follows a chiastic structure, which is to say uh, in fancy terms that Paul is going to kind of circularly argue through things. He's going to say things, he's going to repeat himself, and then he's going to come back out of it repeating the things he just said. So that's why uh, with this text, we're not going to look verse by verse at all his points because he repeats some of the points. Instead, there are three major points that we're going to look at, and we're going to kind of hop around to see how he continues to make these points over and over again. So the three things, uh, if you're writing down or taking notes, he says, point number one is we are going to determine not to tear down one another. So point number one is we're not tearing each other down. And then the positive to that is we're going to determine to build each other up. And so he says these both, which are kind of guardrails on the same idea, but they have different implications, although a lot of what they're going to address are the same issues. So we determine not to tear down. We determine to, in fact, build up. And then lastly, he's going to tell us to determine to live by faith, because faith is the ultimate standard by which we ought to live by. So these are his three points. And so the first thing we're going to look at is how Paul is going to make this argument to determine not to tear down one another. So the first goal of Paul is to persuade the strong believers never to be a stumbling block for their weaker believers. So I'm going to read first in verse 13, and we're going to kind of skip around, and I'll point it out as we go. So in verse 13, he says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And then skip down to verse 15. He says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat... Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So don't put a stumbling block. Don't be a hindrance. Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. In verse 20, he says, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. And then in verse 21, he said, It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So you can see how he's repeating kind of the same phrase throughout the whole text. And he's actually going to say the phrase, expand the idea, say the phrase, expand the idea. And he kind of does that. That's the chiastic structure that I was talking about. But in the first verse, there's this interesting wordplay that Paul uses. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block. Now, in English, we miss this because our English Bible, we don't get to see the full weight of the Greek. But that word, let us not pass judgment and decide, those are the same words in Greek. So what he's saying is, uh, therefore, let us not judge one another, but rather judge not to be a stumbling block for one another. So he kind of uses a wordplay. So don't judge one another, don't condemn one another, but judge for yourself not to be a stumbling block for your friends and for your uh, brothers in Christ. So the question is, how is it possible for the strong believer to be a stumbling block? What does he mean when he says that? And we know uh, that based on how the flow of the text goes, that the, and from what we learned last week, that the liberties of the strong are actually violating the conscience of the weak. 
that there was a difference of opinion on what we call tertiary issues, and that the strong believers fully exercised their liberties in all avenues, and the weak believer was actually bound by conscience and not fully convinced. And in this text, uh, they were arguing about food uh, and days, so observance of the Old Testament uh, dietary laws and observance of the Old Testament sacrificial or uh, rest days, like the Sabbath, the Feast of Booths, and other things like that. And so we know that the, the strong were actually correct in their disposition that they were free, but they were actually flaunting their freedom and like eating this food in front of their weaker brothers who were bound by conscience not to eat these foods. And so he says in verse 14, uh, Paul says, he says, I know that nothing is unclean in and of itself. And he goes on, he says, it is unclean, however, for the one who thinks it to be unclean. And we're going to unpack this idea a little bit of how that's possible for something to actually be wrong, even though objectively it is correct or benign. Right, it's amoral. So I'm going to turn to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read it, and I would like you to turn there with me, Mark chapter 7. And we're going to explore this idea that nothing is unclean. This is not a new teaching by Paul. He's not reintroducing a concept. This was something that Jesus taught consistently throughout his ministry. And this is a prime example of how he faces off against the Pharisees to expound on the idea that nothing is actually unclean, that we are actually freed from that dietary law. And he said, and so this is how the story goes. So Jesus is teaching, and he uh, bumps into the Pharisees, which he often does. And so it says, Now then the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes. So they've got, like, the big guns. All the academics, all the theologians, everyone's out there to get Jesus, right? And they say, uh, and they're from Jerusalem, and they say that, uh, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then in parentheses, he's going to now explain what it, how significant that is, because we miss the context, and he was aware Mark was that other of his readers might miss the context as well because Mark is written to both Greeks and to Jews. So he knows that we wouldn't really understand what's going on here. So parenthetically in, chap in verse 3 it says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And then he's going to continue in verse 5, but I want to pause for a second. So they have, the Pharisees have added to the law. They've actually become narrower than the law has permitted them, even in the Old Testament, which is already pretty restrictive. And they call narrower than the law, which is the same thing we see in the New Testament issue, that the, the weak brothers are narrower than the law. But the Pharisees are using this legalistically as a means to judge the disciples and Jesus. They say, your disciples aren't washing. They're not following our tradition, the tradition of the elders. And Jesus is going to rebuke them and tell them why they're wrong to enforce this in such a way. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the, to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines and commandments of men. So the Pharisees have added to the law. They added to the teachings of God. Then he goes on and he says, you leave the commandments of God and you hold, however, to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. So Jesus is establishing that the Pharisees are out of bounds with holding, this, with holding the people to this. But then he's going to go on to say in verse 18 of this same text. And so he, pulls, he, he rebukes the Pharisees, then they go privately into a, a separate place. And the disciples are like, hold on. Can you explain what just happened to us? Which often happens, and Jesus lovingly and kindly teaches them what's going on. And he said to them, his disciples, and he said, you are, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? 
And what he's talking about is spiritual defilement. You can't be spiritually defiled by something from the outside coming in. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it's expelled. So it's just food. He's always saying. And then it says, in, parenthetically, in case we miss that, thus he declared all foods clean. So this is a teaching of Jesus in the New Testament, right? All foods are clean. And then he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and all of these evil things come from within, and those are the things they defile a person. So the Pharisees are missing the boat, right? They're missing the whole point of it. And they're saying that you don't wash your hands, you're defiled. But Jesus elevates that, and he says, actually, everything that's within you is what's defiling you. It doesn't really matter what you eat. And so this is a teaching of Jesus. This would have been well taught at the time that Paul was writing this letter to the Romans. So Paul includes this teaching as a reminder that actually the strong brothers are correct in their understanding of the text. The strong brothers are correct in that they can eat whatever they want. They have full liberty in Christ to do this thing, right? So this is not a new teaching from Paul to soothe a social problem. This is actually a teaching of Jesus. And so now the question is, how can food that is otherwise perfectly fine become unclean. Because Paul goes on to say, however, it's unclean for the one who thinks it to be unclean. That's a pretty difficult idea. So how could something that's objectively perfectly okay to eat be actually considered unclean? And this is where the matter of conscience gets involved. So I'm going to use an illustration. This is the best one I could come up with, so bear with me on this. Um, I had to run it by Tara a few times and kind of work out the minor points. But uh, let's say I come from a background from a tradition in my family of where if I wear shoes in the house, so I go past my front door, past the mat, and I actually walk into my house with shoes on, I'm being disrespectful to my parents. Because they've asked me beforehand, don't wear shoes in the house, that's disrespectful. So I grow up in this context, I grow up in this culture, I grow up under this old system of commands, right? And then in my new relationship with Tara, I still hold to the old set of commands that I've always believed. So I'm convinced in my heart that it is disrespectful for me to walk into my house with shoes on, and I think that that's disrespectful to Tara. Now, we live in a studio apartment, so there's not much walking I can do before she'll be aware of it. But Tara doesn't actually think it's disrespectful because in her family, it wasn't a problem, right? So let's say in our new relationship, we've, we've established this new norm. It's not disrespectful, but I'm convinced in my heart that I feel like I'm disrespecting Tara if I walk with shoes into my house, right? And so now I have a conviction, right, that I'm disrespecting Tara if I wear my shoes into my house. But she doesn't think it's disrespectful. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's not actually objectively wrong for me to do this but I'm convicted in my heart that it is disrespectful. And then one day, Tara and I have a disagreement about something, right? And so when I come home that day from work, I take off my bags, I put them down, leave my shoes on, and walk into my house. And Tara goes, hold on, wait a second. Don't you think it's disrespectful for you, for you to wear shoes when you walk into the house? Don't you think that's disrespectful to me? And then she goes, and then I go, ah, you've got it. I'm trying to disrespect you right now, right? Because I'm going against my conscience to try to communicate a message that is otherwise amoral, is otherwise indifferent. So I have a principle that I've established that I'm convicted of that is otherwise just normative, right? So these uh, Jews in this context, they thought it was disrespectful to God to eat the foods that uh, were unclean by the Old Testament commands, even though they're free in their liberties to eat this food. And so then if they actually do eat this food, they are being disrespectful because they're directly violating what they think is respectful to the Lord. And in this way, they are committing sin. They are being unclean towards God. They're sinning against God because they're in their heart convinced that this is unclean, and then they do it anyway. So this would be a sin against God in the same way that that would be me actually disrespecting Tara, even though she doesn't care. 
right? Because I'm convinced and now it's a problem because now I'm acting fully convinced that it is disrespectful and I'm doing it anyway, right? This is how it's unclean. And so then how are the strong guilty in this way of hurting the weak? Because the, uh, the weak are the ones who are narrower than the law. So how could the strong be guilty of hurting the weak? How could they, they're not forcing them to do anything necessarily. But Paul goes on to say that it's possible to be a stumbling block for other believers, that you exercising your liberties could actually put a stumbling block in front of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 15, he says, if your brother is grieved, then you are no longer walking in love. So remember the rule of law that love is actually going to fulfill the Old Testament commandments and that we looked at how love is actually the fulfillment of you should not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not covet, you shall not steal. Right? Love is the fulfillment of all those things. So to walk outside of love is to walk outside of the law. And so in this case, they're exercising the liberties fully, grieving their brother, and now they are no longer walking in love. So they're fully, con- they're fully free to do it in Christ, but they're actually causing their brother to stumble by grieving them, and therefore they're breaking unity. And so you can exercise your liberty in a way that violates the law of love. And so in exercising your liberty, you've actually condemned yourself by who you're doing it around and how you're carrying out your liberties. So in this case, the strong in Rome were placing a premium on themselves and their own experience and exercise of liberties over and above the conscience of their brothers. And this is the same thing, by the way, that the Pharisees did, which we ju- just looked at in Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees heap extra rules upon the younger believers, and they, they actually put these rules on them and force them to adhere to these rules. And they flaunt these rules in their face, and they call each other out when they're not doing it. And so in the same way, the strong in the New Testament in Rome, they're fully free in these liberties. And yet they flaunt them in front of the weaker brother and actually say, why don't you come join us with this? I'm going to do this right in front of you. You have the freedom in Christ to come do this. You, you shouldn't feel bound to conscience. And they're actually violating the conscience of their weaker brothers. And so in verses 16 to 18, Paul's going to unpack this. He says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So the weak are feeling condemned, even though the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Uh, And by the way, just so you know, this is not a fake condemnation for the weak. Paul is very, very concerned about the weak feeling this condemnation because they are condemned if they do eat, not by themselves in some kind of like self-judgmental way. They are condemned not by their own conscience, but by God himself because they think that they're being disrespectful to God and so when they engage in these behaviors, they are being disrespectful to God. And so they stand judged and condemned by God if they participate. And the strong are tempting them to participate by flaunting it in their face. So if you exercise your freedom at the expense of others, we know that that is not loving. And in Matthew 18, verses 5 and 7, Jesus actually has a very strong threat to the, uh, he has a very uh, strong threat to the strong, or he has a very potent threat, I should say. He says, whoever causes one of those who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So it would be better for these strong believers if they, didn't, if, they, if, if they caused their weaker brother to sin, to walk into sin, it would be better for them on the day of judgment to just have a millstone fastened around their neck and dropped in the sea. It would be more comfortable for them at that moment because they're causing their brothers to walk into sin. They're causing their brothers to stand condemned before Christ. So this is a very powerful warning that Jesus has And Paul is kind of like parenthetically echoing back towards this writing, okay? So the Christian ethic in all things is to yield your own rights wherever you can 
for the sake of the gospel. And there's a lot of texts that prove this. There's one, uh, we're going to kind of be turning back and forth between uh, where we're at in Romans right now and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. So I want you to kind of hold your place in your text, but turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, and we're going to look at how the Christian ethic is always, always, always to give up your rights for the sake of the gospel. And this is a parallel passage, by the way. In this case, it's food offered to idols. So the pagans in this case were the ones who were bound by conscience. There's idols that are sacrificed in the temple for the worship of Diana, the goddess. And then what happens is they turn around and they sell that meat in the marketplace. And so Jewish believers are like, whatever, just meat. And they buy it and they eat it at dinner. But there are pagans who've been converted to Christ after participating in this temple worship. And they sit down at dinner with these Jews and they go, we can't eat that. That was part of our old life. We can't participate in that anymore because we're bound by conscience. And so it's kind of like a role reversal in this case. So this is the situation they walk in. Another matter of conscience, a very parallel passage. And Paul has very similar teachings for them. So in verses 8 and 12 of chapter 8, he says, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge of eating in this idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat the food that is offered to idols? So won't he be tempted to partake in something that's a violation of his conscience? And so by your knowledge, this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So that's the the emphasis of Paul, I won't eat if it's going to cause someone else to stumble, even though he's fully convinced that he has the liberty to participate in this meal because it just, it just meat. It's a creation of God for us to enjoy, right? So the recently converted pagans are bound by conscience, and so Paul is telling the, new, the Jews in this context, the Christians, don't, don't violate their conscience. Just don't eat meat around them. Don't violate their conscience. Don't cause them to stumble or to be tempted to partake in that practice, right? Don't cause them to dishonor and disrespect God. This is the regulative principle of love. So Paul, even though he knows he has this liberty, is going to seek in every opportunity, give up his liberty for the advancement of the gospel. If you turn over, uh, and this is parallel, by the way, with verse 16 and what we just read, and I'll just read it out for you. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Don't let the liberty that you enjoy be seen by other people as a wrong thing because it's a violation of their conscience. That's what he means by that. And then if you turn to uh, chapter 9 and verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to make a pretty easy statement. He's going to say, am I not free? Am I not free? Right? In verse 17, he echoes this in the passage that we're studying in Romans 14. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Am I not free? It doesn't really matter what I eat or drink, right? You have this full liberty to enjoy this thing, right? That's what he's saying. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 12 and 15, sorry, I know I'm going back and forth between these two. Paul is going to tell us that he's going to actually withhold his own liberties for the sake of these people. So in verse uh, 12 of chapter 9, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar shall share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. 
So what Paul is using is he's using two statements. One, in Corinth, he did not take a salary from the Corinthian church. And he did that because he was under the impression that if he took a salary from them, if he took financial offerings from them, that they would think the only reason this guy's bringing us the gospel is so he can make a buck off of us and then go over to the next town. He forgoes his right to earn a salary as the pastor of this church. He forgoes his right for the sake of the gospel, and he works another day job, and then at nighttime he's doing his ministry stuff. So he forgoes his liberty in Christ to earn a paycheck from this, even though he's going to argue later in this passage that it's actually within his rights to earn money from being a pastor, right? So he forgoes his rights. He says, I'm going to refrain from my rights because I do not want this to be a hindrance to the advancement of the gospel in Corinth. So this is the Christian ethic, right? He's going to forgo his rights in order to advance the kingdom. And then lastly, in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he has this final statement. And he says, and this is, by the way, words to live by right here. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I have become a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So what Paul is saying here is he has full liberty to enjoy all things, right? But he actually uses the regulative principle of love in order to know what's going to hinder other people. In that case, I'm going to restrain my own liberty. So Paul is telling us exactly through his own example how we ought to walk with our weak believers, with those who have different backgrounds than us. We ought to walk in a way which is loving to them, which is even though we have liberties to enjoy things that they might find offensive, we are to walk in love towards those believers. And just, so, and just in case you thought oh, Paul was the only one who does this, consider Jesus who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he empties himself, makes himself in the form of a servant. So he is God and he comes and puts on human clothes and lives our life. He empties himself of, of uh of complete uh, and one unity with God, taking on the God-man personality, right? And he humbles himself to be born as a, as a baby in a manger, and then he humbles himself to death on a cross. So Jesus giving up full rights and liberties that he could have otherwise fully enjoyed, being God in heaven, he didn't have to come down to earth, he didn't have to be spit on, he didn't have to be mocked, he didn't have to be beaten, but he gave up all of his rights to come down and die for you and me. And so if Jesus does this as the model of our faith, the first one who came, the firstborn of many brethren, we ought to also love our brothers in the same way. We can give up a few liberties if Jesus gave up heaven for us, right? Now that he gave it up permanently, he's seated on the right hand of God right now, but he gave it up for a time to walk as the God-man. And so we ought to have this regulative principle that governs how we interact with one another. And so that, that's the negative, is determined not to tear one another down. And then he's going to flip it and he's going to say, then therefore, though, we're going to determine to build one another up. So as we resolve what not to do, we should also know what is fitting for us to do in order to best build out the body of Christ. In verse 19 is the most uh, on the no statement about this. He says, so then let us pursue what makes peace, what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So the opposite of to destroy your brother or to tear down or to put a stumbling block, the opposite of that is to build them up. So let us not stumble, let us not cause one another to stumble, but rather let's seek in every way possible 
to build up our brother, to build up the body. Let us pursue what makes for peace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 23 and 24, he's going to say it like this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So to build up the body is not to seek your own good, to forgo your own rights, and to seek what is the most beneficial for your neighbor. And in this case, the responsibility is on the strong believer to meet their weaker believer where they're at. Because the strong believer has more liberties and should exercise restraint within those liberties in order to love the weaker brother. The, the responsibility here is on the strong Christian. And as Christians, we seek to have our witness be as effective as possible. As Paul says, I become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. However, your perception can hinder your ability to witness to one another. If you exercise a liberty and it hinders your gospel witness, you have wrongly exercised that liberty. You should build up other believers, and to do so requires you to put their needs, their weakness, ahead of your own needs. So you give up your strength in order to fulfill their weakness, and in doing so, you are being loving to your fellow believers. And so there's all kinds of situations in which this plays out. Now, there's a few uh, that I was kind of brainstorming this week, and I talked to Forrest a lot about this as well. What are some practical on-the-ground ways in which we can think about how we give up our own liberties in order for, to meet the weaker brother? And so the first one that we talked about is alcohol, eating and drinking, right? We talked about this last week, that we have liberty in Christ to have alcohol, right? That this is something that you can enjoy. However, if you go to the campus of Indiana Wesleyan University, and you're sitting with someone who is bound in their conscience that it is wrong for them to drink alcohol, and you go out to dinner with that person, don't order a beer. Don't have wine, right? Because to do so would be to drink right in front of that person, to tempt them, and to bind their conscience in such a way in which they feel compromised by being in that situation. Another thing is uh, you shouldn't at all drink around someone who might struggle with alcoholism, right? Because to do so, to exercise the liberty that you have in Christ is actually to be unloving to your neighbor. Forrest told me that he has some friends who have a background of having struggled with alcoholism, and when they come over to his house, he actually empties his fridge and his cabinets and everything of alcohol. Not because he needs to throw it out. There's no Old Testament commandment that says throw out all your alcohol when your friend comes over. There's no t command for that, but he's acting on the basis of love, on the basis of conscience, to meet the weaker brother where they're at in order to be most loving to that person. He gives up and restrains his own rights in order to meet that person exactly where they are at. The blood-bought brother of Christ, who Christ came down to earth and died for, you can give up some of your freedoms. The other one that is a pretty big example in our day and age especially is movies and books. Uh, there's all kinds of doctrine and teachings and philosophies that are very prevalent in this world. Uh, I work in an organization where I read all kinds of stuff that I don't believe, and I read this stuff, and I, I, I learn it, and I engage with it, and I have conversations with other people about it, but I don't go and around and recommend these books to other people, especially as someone who's responsible for uh, leading you guys as a group. I'm not going to recommend most of these books to other people. And the reason is because although I might have the ability to discern, to eat the meat and spit out the bones and to kind of take what's good and reject what's bad, if you don't have that same level of discernment and ability, and I'm not sure, I'm not going to recommend a book to you and have you potentially be led astray by the teachings of some author or some person, or some theologian who's going to teach you something that's completely wrong and send you down a spiral, right? That would be for me to violate the conscience of someone else, because although I might have the ability of discernment, someone else might not have that same capacity. So you have to exercise discernment with who you discuss certain topics around, because they might not have the strength in Christ, strength in faith, in order to gauge in that conversation. 
There are all kinds of hard teachings in scripture. You have to know where you're supposed to regulate your own strength in order to love on your weaker brother. That means that you don't throw doctrines in their face that they struggle with understanding, right? You have to walk in love towards one another. And that doesn't mean that I have everything correct either, but you have to walk in love towards one another and exercise discernment, even though I have full liberty to engage and read these books or to watch a certain movie or to engage in these conversations. That doesn't mean that I exercise my liberty every single sphere and arena that I'm in, right? You have to know where to restrain yourself. And that is to be loving to your neighbor. The other one that uh, I think is really on the nose is uh, sarcasm or joking or the use of language. And so something that uh, I grew up in a sports team, so I'm really comfortable with engaging in very sarcastic conversation. Taylor, the same way we can banter back and forth and be totally fine, right? But at the same time, if I have someone who I know is bound by conscience that they feel disrespectful when they're engaging with someone else at that level, it wouldn't be right for me to try to engage them in a sarcastic conversation because they might feel disrespected or personally convicted if they engaged and joked with me in that way. They might go home later and feel personally condemned about the way in which they behaved. So you have to, you have full liberty, by the way, to joke and to be sarcastic, but you have to exercise restraint in certain areas with certain people, right? I don't do the same sarcastic comments with my parents because they would feel disrespected if I did those things, right? Even though I'm not trying to be disrespectful, it can bump into someone who does maybe feel disrespected in that way. And also with sarcasm, you have to be careful because for some people, sarcasm can become a way to communicate a truth they're actually feeling under the guise of joking. And so you have to be very careful that you don't allow an atmosphere in which negative feelings and opinions can be communicated and kind of laughed off, even though they're kind of landing for certain people as punches or jabs. So you have to be very careful with how you use language, even though in f you have full liberty in Christ to use language, you have to be very careful with how you use that language. You have to exercise restraint for the conscience of your fellow brothers in Christ. So the strongest thing that anyone can do is to have a liberty before Christ, to be given a liberty by God, and then to not exercise that liberty. That's the strongest thing you can do as the strong believer, is not to take advantage of every liberty that you have and flaunt it in front of other people. The strongest thing you can do, because you don't need to flaunt a liberty in order to prove that you have it. You're not proving anything to anyone. But if you have a liberty, you're not bound by conscience that you can't do that thing, but you exercise restraint in order to save the conscience of someone else, that is the strongest thing you can do. To exercise moderation, to exercise discernment, right? To go into different situations and not use your own liberty to maybe bind, especially when you think someone is in disagreement with you or potentially the weaker brother in certain situations. Okay? You have to exercise really strong discernment. We have the liberty, but we must not be controlled or bound by our liberties in any way. The way Paul says it in this writing is in verse 15, he says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And then in verse 20, he says, do not destroy the work of God. Now, this word destroy can sometimes mean to, to tear down, but the Greek word is actually the same word in John 3.16, which is translated as, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. It's the word for to be damned, to be condemned. So you could potentially destroy a weaker brother, or through your behavior and your exercise of liberty, actually lead them right out the door of faith. And that is a woeful thing to partake in. To partake in the, the binding of someone else's conscience, you would be, be better have a millstone fastened around your neck than to exercise your liberty at the expense of someone else's faith. What a serious thing. And so 
out of, out of respect for the weaker brother, out of an abundance of caution, you have to exercise full restraint even though you have liberty to do these things. You have liberty, but you must exercise restraint. And so then the last thing is really one verse right at the end. Paul takes everything he's been teaching, and in verse 23, he's going to take, he's going to make a thesis statement, a general truth about things that kind of echo forward and backward in the book of Romans and in all of scripture. And that is that we are going to determine then to live by faith. Now, what we've explored so far is the practical rules, but uh, this is kind of actually a difficult topic because it's a very harsh statement, a harsh teaching. In verse 23, in the back half, so the very last sentence of this chapter, he says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Here, Paul has a final point to this passage and that he, to an idea that he's been exploring really starting in chapter 12. He has this kind of thesis statement that whatever does not proceed from faith is therefore sinful. He's explored the gray areas. He's explored the black and white areas. Now he's going to make a thesis statement. What is the common through line through all of these things? The common through line is that you are not condemned if you are exercising it in faith. But if you go against faith, if you do not proceed in faith, that you are being sinful. That word for whatever, whatever means anything, all things. That's what allows us to divorce it from necessarily this context. Right? He doesn't say, then, so whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So he's taking a specific teaching at this moment, and he's going to then blow it up to a universal truth. Okay? This statement is unhinged from the context. It is a universal truth claim, and it's going to echo all throughout the text, all throughout scripture, and it's going to actually be taught consistently throughout Romans, as we'll see in a minute. Then this is the statement in more plain terms. He says, if it does not proceed from faith, then it is sinful. So if it doesn't come from faith, it is therefore then, as a result of not proceeding from faith, a sin. This truth is seen by the fact that there are, apart from faith, no good works. In the Old Testament, God says that even their good works are but filthy rags before my eyes. The good works of people outside of the faith are not considered good by God. And the reason why you cannot please God is because you are not proceeding from faith because you don't have faith to proceed from. In Romans chapter 8, verse 8, he says it like this, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Not sometimes cannot please God, not most of the time can't be pleasing to God. They cannot please God. Why? Because we look around the world and we see people who are very, very uh, generous with their money, very generous with their time, very generous with their careers. Why are those good works not considered good? Because whatever does not proceed from a basis of faith is sinful. That's true. Our ultimate purpose in this world, what we've been created for, is to give glory to God and to enjoy him forever. That's the thing that we've been fully created for. And in order to bring glory to God, we have to be proceeding from a place of faith, or else we cannot in any way bring glory to God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If it does not come from faith, it is idolatry, because faith is trust in the Lord. And if it doesn't come from faith, it is therefore idolatry, because you're not trusting in the Lord, you're trusting in yourself. By the way, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, what he's saying there is equivalent to the statement that he says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, where he lists a whole bunch of sins, and he, by the way, lumps this in with that category of sin. 
So if you exercise your spiritual liberty in a way that doesn't proceed from faith, it is the same as acting in that category of sins. Slander, covetousness, murder, all of those sins that he lists in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. By the way, being lumped in with a category of people who reject God outright, you are rejecting God by the exercise of your faith, your liberty to condemn your brother. You're lumped in with the same category. This is a back and forth echo statement. It is the reliance on self rather than God that condemns you as being sinful. And God is not going to regard your outward display, but he is going to regard the inward obedience of your heart. That's why this is a true statement. That's why if you do not proceed from faith, it is sinful because God doesn't care about your works. He doesn't care about what you do. He looks at the heart level. And we know that on our plain level, we look at other people's works and we can maybe make a judge about how they are maybe in relationship with God, depending on how much they read and how much they pray and how they speak. We can make a judgment based on works. And actually in the New Testament, we know we can judge one another by the fruit that they bear. However, God doesn't care about an outward display. The only thing he is concerned with is the heart level. So if it doesn't proceed from faith, it doesn't matter what it looks like to all of us. It's still sinful because at the heart level, it still wasn't in right relationship with God. That's why whatever does not proceed from faith is sinful. Sin leads to death. Sin, apart from faith, is the same sin that he talks about earlier in Romans. It is all in the same category as separation from God. So outside of faith, even your good works are heaping condemnation upon yourself. Because what you are doing is you are saying, look God at how good I am, at how loving I am to my neighbor. This is all, by the way, inside of myself that I can do this. And we do this to elevate ourselves to a status where maybe we could one day stand before God. And we are heaping condemnation upon ourselves if we do not proceed from a place of faith where we are trying to do it to glorify God rather than glorify ourselves to make it into heaven. One cannot act from faith if they do not have faith. You cannot not sin, or in other words, you're only ever able to sin if you are not a follower of God. Everything that you do continually heaps condemnation upon you because all of your actions are proceeding without faith because there is no faith there. And so even to us, if it looks good on the outside, we say, well, wouldn't God let that person into heaven because they were so good, they were so loving, they were so kind, even though they rejected God? No. Their good works do not proceed from faith and therefore are sin. Every action apart from God is sin. Then there's only one way to exit that state, that, consi that consistent cycle of sinning. Because if whatever you do that doesn't proceed from faith is sin, the only way to exit that cycle of sinning is to proceed from faith. And the only way to proceed from faith is to have God supernaturally purchase you on the cross through his son Jesus to atone for your sins and to then have the Holy Spirit come into your heart and dwell in you and renew your heart in such a way in which you see who the old you was and you see with right eyes and with scales falling off your eyes who God is. And you rightfully see who you are, who God is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you look at those things and you say, woe is me, I am a sinner. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. And your eyes have been opened and you rightfully see and you repent of your old ways because you have a spirit within you that is bound in such a way in which it sees God and loves God. Even though your old heart saw God and hated him and you were rebellious in your old ways. And then you begin this journey of dying to self and living to Christ and picking up your cross daily and constantly giving up your liberties for the sake of one another and advancing the gospel and bringing glory to God in everything that you do, whether it be in your work and how you build wood floors and how you love one another. 
You do everything to the glory of God. You enjoy food for the glory of God. You listen to music for the glory of God. And you do everything because you proceed from faith, enjoying the good gifts that God has given, and rightfully worshiping the Creator who gives those gifts rather than the gifts themselves. Apart from this, there is nothing that is good. There are temporary enjoyments. There are temporary pleasures. But apart from this reality, there is nothing that matters. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I'm so thankful for uh, who your word shows you to be. Lord, I'm so thankful for uh, getting to study your text uh, and, to, and to worship you rightly through the reading of your word and through the exercising of, of this out in our lives, Lord, that you would use this to convict us, to convince us, um, to sharpen us, Lord, to call us out where we are in disalignment with you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, work in us and transform our hearts and transform our minds to see you rightly and to take a look at all the aspects in our lives in which we have legitimate liberties in you to exercise and that you would, with our conscience, bind us to restrain ourselves so that we would not, for the sake of our liberties, destroy our brothers, Lord, but that we would, for, who, for the one whom Christ died, that we would exercise as many restraints as possible to, to restrain ourselves in order to love the one who you have loved and that we could be most glorifying to you in the restraint of our liberty and not in the exercise of our liberty. Lord, I pray that you would give us great wisdom and great discernment, which we require in order to live this rightly. And I pray that you would humble us as we approach one another with fear and trembling, that we would do everything and all things to best glorify you in every way possible, Lord. And I pray all of these things in your name. Amen.